You're listening to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Hello there, I'm Sharon Noonan and you're very welcome to this second helping show of the best possible taste when you get the chance to hear again some previously aired interviews. And on this programme we're going to hear what our resident wine guru Ron Forrestal said about Australian wines, what food and wine magazine restaurant reviewer Rachel Keeley thought of Edo's in Dingle and I'm also going to replay the time I put the call into artist Henrietta Graham. Please feel free to contact Best Possible Taste at any time by email me s.noonan at live.ie or you can tweet me at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation. Now it's time for the first second helpings interview and it's with our resident restaurant reviewer Rachel Keeley. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Rachel, how are you this evening? I'm great, Sharon. How are you? Great. And you're very welcome back to the studio. Summer is over. It is, unfortunate. I'm kind of hoping we get one of those Indian summers they always talk about and uh, we never quite get. Maybe when everyone's back at school fully, maybe that's when it'll kick in. Well, well fingers crossed. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, we have the memories of the places you've been to eat and your last time that you were here, you said you were going to Dingle. Yes, yes. We, uh, we spent a lovely bank holiday weekend down there. On our holidays. <laughs> and you'd be spoiled for choices with the number of lovely restaurants and bars and different cafes that there are to eat in Dingle. Absolutely. It's amazing. It has such a tiny little village in the outer outcrops of Western Ireland, practically in the Atlantic. Uh, it can become so famous for its food and for its suppliers and its producers and um, its advocates of Irish food. It's amazing. And I'd imagine a bit busier than this year not that it isn't busy normally during the summer, but much busier because of the Star Wars movie being filmed just outside the town. Yes, we had an idea of possibly getting over to um, Skellig, but uh, we were promptly informed that we were delusional and we were going to have to sign up three months in advance to get to get over there. So, I mean, maybe it's died down now, but at the time uh, they said we'd better chance of swimming there ourselves. Wow, OK, well, that's <laughs> us happening. all. We're all told and warned now. Basically, yeah. So tell us where you enjoyed, was it dinner or lunch? We went for dinner. Um, we went for dinner uh, with a couple of friends to a place called Edos, uh, which I had heard about but had never had the opportunity to visit. So I was very glad we did. Now that's spelled I-D-A-S. Is it, is it I-D-A apostrophe S or is it I-D-A-S? Because my Irish now would not be up to scratch and obviously Dingle is a, an Irish speaking area. It is indeed and uh, I will preface it's a good point. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing it right or not. Uh, I come from a very different dialect of Irish and, and of which I know very little um, but I believe it's Edos because the father is on the A Okay, um, I believe Do you know what it, what it means? Yes it refers to the chef's grandfather Okay His name I, it was Edo well I think Edo again I could be completely wrong but I think it may be um, a sort of a familial term for granddad Okay um, that kind of thing or it could be his first name I really should find out Alright no that's <laughs> nice that sounds good we'll, we'll run with that Yeah so what sort of restaurant is it? Is it seafood? Because obviously Dingle and the whole seafood and the fishermen coming in there is hugely popular. Is it predominantly seafood or is there lots of meat there as well? Because I suppose as I'm saying that, I'm thinking about the Dexter beef and everything that is reared very close to the town. 
Yeah, I, th- I think you've got it in a nutshell, Sharon. It's it's what is reared close to the town and, and whether that be sort of what's caught um, or what's foraged or what's grown or what is uh, is reared in terms of livestock, it's basically a little bit of everything. Um, it's very much focused on local, uh, very much focused on simple um, and simplicity and um, and also in sort of, sort of what I found from it in terms of the menu and in terms of chatting to the chefs is that it's about sort of reaching into their local history and um taking what is available to them uh, in their environment and working from there. So the menu seems to follow from the ingredients, not the other way around, which is very interesting. Tasting menus are very popular in Dingle and some of the restaurants there, I find. Did you go for a tasting menu? Do they have a tasting menu? They do indeed. Uh, we weren't anticipating it. I, I often don't like ent- tasting menus because I end up so full um, and with such a variety of different dishes that I'm ready for nothing but the, the, the laba, as they would say down there by the time I'm leaving. Um, but the menu here just sounded so intriguing that I had to taste it. It was the best way to kind of get a taste of everything was to go for this this mixture menu. Um, so it entailed six courses for 60 euro. Um, there's also another set menu for 45 so if you don't want as many as six courses you can always go for that um, and then given that it was the bank holiday weekend and given that it was a Friday and we were on our holidays we added wine pairings for an additional 45 euro so it's it's a bit of a treat night out at that rate so that makes for 105 euro each but it's six courses and six wines so it's it's, a, it's an event really. I find with the wine pairings that it really does complement a meal Yes, especially when you're sort of at that level, um, you know, where, where there's somebody, the actual the staff that we dealt with, everybody to to a man, um, and it was all men for some reason, um, was incredibly knowledgeable. Everyone seemed to know a lot about the particular field, whether it be the wine that they were serving or the food that they were serving. So we really felt that we were getting... Um, it's sort of a certain amount of knowledge and wisdom in going for these wine pairings in what worked with best best with each ingredient so it was worth it just for that sort of education I suppose you could call it so tell us about the courses then um, what I find is with the tasting menus is that I feel I should be sharing my portions with Michael that you know we shouldn't be eating the same given that he's much bigger than I am so um, which can be quite challenging then because with tasting menus the portion sizes are obviously much more mm-hmm. modest yeah I suppose they'd have to be or else you'd be rolled out of the place um, yeah it's a problem in our house too where my husband has a significantly bigger uh, appetite than I would but what I find we enjoy uh, very occasionally is the ability to be able to talk about the same meal and the same dishes and the same tastes um, so because the portions are so small and we're all just getting little tastes you're really concentrating more on what you're actually experiencing um, and because you're both experiencing the same thing and tasting the same thing there's a lot of conversation about the food so again that turns what is a meal um, or sort of a dinner essentially into that little bit more of an experience you know to, to probably um, use a bit of a <laughs> common term in the industry but it really was uh, it, it's sort of something that's enjoyable for a couple to do every once in a while as well well talk us through each of the six courses then um, well, it began with an amuse-bouche, which was served on um, a stone uh, with a length of thistle running through it as a garnish. So it's kind of a very good introduction um, to what was to come in terms of the locality um, and the simplicity and uh, the rural kind of nature of it. Uh, we had a, a various arrangement, very, very prettily arranged, actually. Um, the chef, Kevin Murphy, went to art school, so I think that may have uh, led to some of the prettier designs uh, in terms of presentation. It, there was some freshly foraged sorrel, droplets of creamy yoghurt on top of them, a local 
triple smoked pancetta, which was amazing, with cured egg yolk um, and some goat's cheese, which was just hidden be- beneath paper thin slices of dehydrated beetroot. So you can imagine that was that beautiful um, purple colour. Um, and uh, again, I said just served in a stone, just these little tastes of everything so that we can get an introduction to, um, to the meal that was to follow. Sounds lovely. It was very nice. Yeah, absolutely fab. Um, we followed with something very, very interesting, actually. It was a forage broth of land and sea. Um, so obviously that begged a question and it was soon answered with a bowl of sort of a dark, musky liquid. Um, and then within that, that liquid was uh, some vibrant green beets, coriander and aster, um, which were all actually claimed from the Atlantic. So it was sea coriander and sea aster, um, which is very, very different, actually. Um, there was a Glen Bay oyster served on the side and in the advice of our server we just pitched the oyster into the soup and ate it that way so it was a very very interesting way to eat it you know you got that salty tang cutting through these sort of more umami kind of umami kind of flavours um, and it all worked beautifully then with Loire Valley Muscadet which is a wine that's close to my heart given that I went to college in Nantes uh, I drank an awful lot of that when I was younger um, so it was a very very uh, interesting dish and again very simple it sounds delicious. It was. It was one of those divisive dishes. And, uh, not everyone at the table liked oysters. Not everyone liked the strong umami flavours. Um, but I found that the, the contrast was, was very, very interesting. I love oysters, but I, I'd say I would have been reluctant to have put it into the soup. I like them au naturel with nothing really, maybe a bit of Tabasco and lemon. But I, he, I don't like them heated up or cooked yes. in any form. It's a curious kind of texture when they're heated. Yeah. Yes, it's not necessarily a good one. Um, whereas mussels I do enjoy uh, heated yeah. for some reason. I don't yeah. know why, the, the I know, contrast. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's very bizarre. I, I'm with you on that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not alone in my notions. So. Um, but no, it, it was just, I suppose, a more interesting way of, of tasting it to have that salt just cut through those, those flavours. Um, and again, that relates back to the experience as opposed to just a meal. So the next course brought you halfway through the third course. What was that? It was more seafood. It, uh, we had scallops. Um, they were chopped with cucumber for texture and then mixed with fermented fennel, powdered rose and um, some lovely, very pretty lavender-coloured chai flowers. Um, so it was um, basically sort of a very refreshing, very... Um, I suppose palate cleansing dish to, to follow with from something as strong as the soup beforehand uh, it was served with a really really excellent wine it was an Argentinian Torontes um, it was from Bodega Colombe and a very very strong nose and a long finish it was an absolute the highlight of the wines um, I nearly uh, pinched my the rest of I did in fact pinch the rest of my husband's glass of it it was so enjoyable very nice indeed. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those ones that you're nearly reluctant to change, but you know that obviously you have to for the next course, but it was a very, very nice wine. What came next? More fish. Um, it was turbot, which was uh, served with something called coastline. And when I inquired as to what this was, I was told it's a surprise. Uh, it was worth the wait and uh, worth a little bit of... Um, of trust, I suppose, in the kitchen. Uh, it's, it's sort of this whimsical phrase, but it encapsulates mussels sea aster, samphire and uh, little sort of uh, round potatoes that were rolled in ground seaweed uh, which is a lovely way of mixing textures and mixing flavours as well it was accompanied with homemade whey, cheese whey which I haven't had before um, and I was astonished to find that it tasted quite lemony, quite citrusy even though the chef assured me there's absolutely no lemon involved in the cooking so it's amazing how working with very simple ingredients can create these flavours uh, without having to resort I suppose for uh, d- to actually pulling down uh, a 
lemon from the shelf and chucking that in as well. It was very, very um, light and very silken in terms of its texture. It, it worked beautifully with the uh, Loire Valley Vivray. Um, again, another sort of nice white wine, which, which lent itself beautifully to the fish. The next course must have been meat. It was. <laughs> At that point, we'd had a lot of fish all right. But um, it was just right, I think, especially because the next course was probably the highlight. Um, I think I wrote in the review that, that uh, my dining partners rarely struck dumb um, in silent appreciation or otherwise. And in this case, he just didn't speak the entire time he was eating. It was an absolutely incredible um, local beef. Uh, I think it was a fillet, actually, if I remember correctly. It was dry aged for 52 days and cooked in its own fat. So no oil, no butter, just purely its own fat. Um, and to just, I mean, I just nudged it with the fork and it just cleaved in two. It was so tender, absolutely beautiful and cooked gorgeously, perfectly pink on the inside. It was served with Ballyhura shiitakes, um, so fresh, uh, alongside a potato dauphinois. And then they had these little burnt onions, uh, well, the onion sort of, um, the, the, the layer, which had blackened edges, and inside it was puddled some um, consomme, some onion consomme. So it was a fabulously simple dish, but the flavours were so rich. Um, and you could really tell that the 52 days of ageing really came through, and it was the absolute highlight of the meal. There must have been a nice red to go with it. There was. It was so good that when we finished, we ordered a bottle of it. No way. <laughs> It was that good, yeah. I did say there were more than just two of us there. Um, it was the Moulin de Chanlirac from the Rhone Valley. Um, very subtly spiced, but also quite rich. So uh, it worked beautifully with the, with the meat. I, I find that there are some reds that I like a heavily full-bodied red with a lot of sort of pepper flavours to it um, but you need quite a strong robust red to stand up then to the uh, to the meaty flavours and this this worked absolutely perfectly does that bring us then to dessert um a palate cleanser i think is okay what yeah we had crushed apple chopped hazelnuts and a berlita that was quite sour and um, so it definitely cleansed the palate it Cleansed it all the way. <laughs> and you were ready for dessert then? We were. Um, dessert was actually fabulous. Again, very, very it, it focused on the locality uh, and seasonality as well. We had uh, rhubarb, very, very tart. And again, um, it, sort of good to wash away all those uh, heavy flavours from the meals earlier on. It was bedded in a very soothing kind of mascarpone uh, with a dash of dingle gin, of course, and some crushed juniper berries as well, which really kind of elevated the presentation of the dish and served with a glass of Prosecco. Oh, lovely. Yeah. glass of Prosecco at the end. Mm. It was what we needed to revive us for the walk home, I can tell you, because we were so full at that point. So it was perfect. In terms of value then, you said it was €60 Euros for the six courses and the wine pairing was 45 mm-hmm. So that was 105 It sounds like you got a lot to eat and drink for your money. We did. So it was very much, it was it was an event. It was something that I would I would do as a treat. Um, and you certainly do get value from it. There's no doubt about it. The portions, I know we mentioned at the start, the tasting menu portions are often quite small. I didn't feel these were overly small. Um, I've been in some restaurants where you almost sort of have to take out a magnifying glass to see what's on the dish. But that wasn't the case here. The the steak in particular was absolutely perfect size. Um, it made all the guys around the table were very happy with the portion. So that's a good arbiter, I think. Okay, super. Mm. So that's Edo's. Am I saying it correctly? I think so. In Dingle, <laughs> whereabouts in Dingle is it? They, I think they're just off the main street. They're on John Street. Um, so I think it's just as you're coming in the first roundabout, if I remember correctly. Um, we stayed in a very nice B and B across the road, and it was perfect. 
Okay, super. Lovely. Thanks a million for coming in tonight to tell us about that. I know you don't know where you're off to next, but we look forward to you coming back in in October to, to tell us where you've been. Thanks a million, Rachel. Thanks, Sharon. Great to be here. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to a second helping show of the best possible taste with me, Sharon Noonan. This show is a collection of previously aired interviews and it's available to listen to on the Best Possible Taste podcast, along with lots of other previously aired shows. And you'll find the podcast on my website, SharonNoonan.com. And you can also subscribe to the Best Possible Taste free of charge and download it on iTunes or use the podcast app. Just before the break, we heard what Food & Wine magazine's Rachel Keeley thought of Edos in Dingle when she visited there in the summer of 2016. Next up, we're going back to August 2016 when artist Henrietta Graham spoke to me by phone. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Henrietta, you're so good to take the call tonight because I know you're a very busy bee at the moment. You're moving to a new studio. I am indeed. I'm moving to a new studio in the heart of Newlyn, which has got a wonderful history for artists. Well, just tell us now where exactly you are in England and just assume that our geography of England isn't very good. Absolutely. It is um, all the way down in the southwest in Cornwall, right, right, right at the edge of Cornwall, right sort of, you know, you're toppling, toppling right off into the foot of England. And it's a little fishing village, my studio, my new studio is, um, which is called Newlyn, which is full of... It's a huge fishing fleet. It's a huge port um, and has a, a, a big legacy of artists. So it's a, it's a round peg in a round hole for me to be there now. And is this where you grew up? Is this Not where at you're... all. No, oh. actually, I'm from London. I, I moved to Cornwall about 15 years ago as I thought it was probably going to be more conducive to isolating myself and concentrating on painting. And also I could get bigger spaces. I mean, I, I'm working in an old cannery which is about 35 foot by 35 foot with huge, great big ceilings. And a space like that in London would be impossible to afford and also wouldn't necessarily have the fantastic views of the sea and the inspiration that that brings. And, I mean, London is a fabulous city and it has a lot going for it, but equally somewhere like Cornwall, there's just a more romantic feel to that sort of setting, I would imagine. It is, and it's, it's a place where you can actually put your head down and not be so distracted, because there are, I mean, I adore London and I regularly spend time there, but it's distracting. There are fantastic exhibitions, museums, people, endless restaurants, and, and if you have nothing but a pub and a great view, there's not a lot to distract you. <laughs> You, you get down and work. Well, tell us a bit about your work. Um, the reason that we're talking to you tonight is because you love to paint kitchen scenes and do portraits of chefs. So how did this passion arise? Well, it's always been there, even so far as I think one of my earliest memories is probably aged about 10, um, being shown actually around a rather smart kitchen, the waterside at Bray, um, which was then um, the Rue Brothers, and the head chef then was Pierre Kaufman, and I, the imagery stayed with me. You, you know, you have the serenity of this three Michelin-starred restaurant, and then behind the swing doors, just the, the, the biggest theatre of a brigade of chefs and the whites and the lights and the pots and the pans and a frenzy of activity, and it, it stayed with me. And 
I think probably when I was in my early 20s, I had a studio just round the corner from a certain Gordon Ramsay. And it was before he was as big as he is now. And he let me into the kitchen to paint. And I did a whole series for him. This is now about, about 18 years ago. So that's probably where it started. And those scenes where just the people working, or is there always people in them? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, occasionally I might sort of veer off and get distracted by a fish, but invariably I very much enjoy, it's the, it's the energy of chefs at work. Um, sometimes they become quite intense portraits as a bit of a diversification, but on the whole it's, it's that action of, of them all at work coming together, you know, at the past. It's, it's, it's very theatrical. You have a portrait of Gordon Ramsay on your website. I'm just looking at it now. Yes. When, so when was that done? That would have been, um, at a guess, I would say it was when he was, he, just before he took over at Claridge's, um, and the painting was actually done in his restaurant in Aubergine, but it subsequently is on the menu, or it's been on the menu, I think, for the last, I don't know how many years, at his restaurant, his flagship restaurant in Royal Hospital Road. Because he looks, he looks very kind and gentle in that portrait. I think. <laughs> I think <mean>, focused <laughs> and young, also. Yeah, so I mean, the the you know either side of that moment is a rather terrifying um, Gordon. I mean, he is he is an absolute master, and I did bear witness to him um, keeping his brigade in check, shall we say? Yeah, I'd say, yeah. <laughs> sure that was an experience in itself. Oh, amazing, amazing. And I don't think I've ever worked in such a hard kitchen, so it, was, it, it set me up well. Was he the first chef yes. that you ever painted, Dan? He was, and in actual fact, I, I did a lot of work with him because he subsequently commissioned a whole series to go around the chef's table at Claridge's. So that was a highlight. And then when I moved to Cornwall, I stopped painting chefs. But it was at the back of my mind, and then in the Observer Food Monthly, they featured an article on Gordon in front of this painting that was then quite old. And so I got in touch to say, maybe, maybe this needs to be redone. But he was a bit busy and things were going on and we did a rain check. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. Who else is around? And there's a magnificent chef in Cornwall called Nathan Outlaw, who now has two Michelin stars. And I approached Nathan and went to go and see him in his restaurant, which, is, which was then in Foy. He's now in Port Isaac. And sort of an idea came to pass that actually wouldn't it be interesting to paint all of the top chefs in the country, which started off as about 15 and has probably now hit 50. So it's been quite quite an extraordinary journey and one that I didn't envisage taking me quite the length of time. I've been on it for six years. Would you believe Nathan Outlaw was in Galway last year at an event, it's called Food on the Edge, that a lot of the world's best chefs would be at. And he opened that conference. He was the first speaker at it. And, I mean, he's very youthful. He's very young. He is. He is. He's fantastic. He's absolutely brilliant. I mean, he's, 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 I'm, not, I mean I'm fascinated to hear that, but he's, he's very involved with the industry and promoting it and encouraging young people to come into it. He's a terrific figurehead, I think, for making the restaurant industry just just appealing to people because a lot of people may be looking for jobs and may not think about the kitchen but it's it's there's fantastic opportunities there it's hard work it's amongst the hardest work there is which is what i'm also drawn to because their hours and their commitment is extraordinary and somebody else that was at that conference last year that you have done a portrait of is claire smith who's from northern ireland originally that I didn't know, and I should know that. Yes, I have painted Claire. I haven't quite finished it. 
um, oh how interesting and there's lots of other people there that listeners the names that they'd recognise like Gary Rhodes um, I'd like to see how you did his hair in that portrait I, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you it is it, you can find it on my Twitter feed okay um, I must look for that <laughs> yeah but it's I've enjoyed painting Gary I mean he's not often in the country because he's largely based in Dubai but I got lucky to meet him and paint his portrait and yeah. when and when you paint these chefs are you doing it from them in real life or do you do it from do you take photographs I and go take, away I do I cheat I take photographs and I do sketches because the reality is some of them are huge I did a painting of James Martin that was about 12 foot so I can't really erect that in the middle of the kitchen <laughs> and they take me months as well so I mean sometimes I can do a quick sketch but the more laboured finished pieces they have to be studio based so, also, you, you, you want to... The, what I'm really interested in is, is that moment of, of activity. And you'd never catch that without using photography or sketches. You're putting together lots of different images that you've seen while you've worked in the kitchens. Yeah, you would have to see them at work, wouldn't you, really, to yeah. capture that essence and transfer yeah. it onto the... Like, what sort of um, materials do you use then? Is it all oil paintings? They are. They're, yeah. they're all... They're, I mean, sometimes I use the mixed media. Sometimes I do pull in egg tempera. Um, they're all, but mostly they're all oils on canvas. Um, yeah. Is is it all British chefs? No, no. I have just finished a painting of Ken Hom, and there's an awful lot of French chefs in there. Unsurprisingly, there's also Atul Kusha, who's a wonderful Indian chef with Benares in Berkeley Square in London. I'm just trying to think. And I also travelled to Spain to paint the youngest ever three Michelin star chef, who's a chap called Enrico Axter, who's who's brilliant. Um, and I've painted Daniel Ballou, who's a very, very successful New York-based chef. And Richard Corrigan, one of um, our yes, Irish have, chefs. Yeah, I've, I've been painting Richard Corrigan. I haven't been able to get it quite right. I'm still struggling with that one because I have never come across such an animated person. Oh, really? Probably not surprising, being <laughs> Irish. She has huge amounts of charm, but his face never stops moving. So you're, <laughs> you're struggling. <laughs> so there's going to be, or is there an exhibition of these of these chef paintings is that the plan well the plan is a book called a portrait of the great chefs of britain um but at the moment that's sort of in it i haven't finished because there's still a couple of big chefs that i want to paint notably marco pierre white and heston blumenthal so i sort of i haven't quite finished the series but i've got my feelers out and i'm talking to publishers and i would imagine we'll be hopefully looking to combine a book launch with an exhibition of some of them and and how do you is it through their publicist then that you make the approach that you'd like to do the painting you of know, them? no I, no i mean i have in a couple of instances but on the whole i've been really old-fashioned about it i've got my my old writing paper out pen pen to paper and, and handwritten them all letters well that always gets attention now in this day I and age doesn't it i think it probably does yeah. I, had, I, had, I, I didn't even pick up the telephone i just sat down and methodically wrote out personal letters because it's it's been a very personal journey for me and it, it wasn't so overwhelming because i started as i said with just a few and what would happen is i'd be with one chef for example i remember being with sat baines in nottingham and he said to me gosh you must paint daniel clifford and so then it became about the chefs helping out and actually then introducing me to the next chef so it got almost easier as I got more into the series because more of them became aware of what I was doing and when I got in touch they they knew who I was and it wasn't just this absolutely deranged artist <laughs> coming at them from out of the blue there was like oh yes that's the one that paints chefs 
and you have a target of you want to do 50 of the top shelves. It's, yes, and I'm pretty much there. Um, yeah, yes. So hopefully we'll get to see that publication sooner rather than later. I hope so. Putting the pressure on you now, Henrietta. <laughs> well, that's probably what I need as well. As I said, I've been distracted moving studios, and now that distraction is disposed. So if you can hear snorting, it's my pug who's just come to sit on my lap. <laughs> I'm sure he's great company for you. Is it, is it during the day that you, yes. you would do most? Is it na- is natural light very important whenever Funnily you're... enough, no. I mean, it is. It's wonderful. But at the same time, you you, you know, it's, it's, it's this country. You can't have it all year round. So I... I I have serious studio lights as well, so I can I can paint on into the night. Whenever you have an exhibition, there must be a great sense of pride and accomplishment to see your works of art hanging in a space and people admiring them and talking about them. <laughs> I think it's a little bit like going on the tube train in your underwear. It's actually... Oh, really? That doesn't sound like it's a very pleasurable experience. <laughs> it's actually quite... It's quite terrifying. Um... You know, it's it's not that comfortable. The only time I really enjoyed it, and I'm going to show off now, and I'm not meaning to, but it's the only time I really enjoyed it because I felt very anonymous, was when I got my painting of James Martin into the National Portrait Gallery for the BP. Because then it was my painting amongst lots of others. And you could sort of stand back and listen to people. And of course, they didn't know you've done it. Whereas if you have a, just a complete show and it's got your name above the door, everyone knows that you've done it because they've come to see you and the work. Whereas... If I, in a sort of public space like that, it was more fun because I, was, I wasn't being looked at. People were just looking at the work, if that makes sense. You sound very like a very modest person. I don't know about that, but I did enjoy American while I'm walking past my painting and just going, oh, my God, great watch. And then she, she just carried on walking. I thought, oh, that, that was good. That so was really so that hard. was the watch that you had painted as part <laughs> yes. of it. Wow. Isn't it amazing what people notice, though, yes. and what yes. stands out to people? And she was right to say it because it was an extremely difficult thing to paint. So she picked up on something I was glad about. They say, now you can tell me is this true or not, that whenever it comes to capturing somebody's likeness, that it's more difficult to capture a female likeness than a male likeness. I think that's very true. Um, And on the whole, apart from Angela Hartnett and Claire Smith, and there's maybe a couple of others that I should paint, um, it's, it's probably for my benefit that the hospitality industry is male-dominated because men, I, I do find them much easier to paint. There's more baggage with a woman, I'm afraid. Yeah. It's just, it's, it, there's a greater pressure when it comes to, I suppose, beauty um, or, or attractiveness. I hope I'm not sounding superficial, but a rugged old male face is a joy to paint, whereas you might not want to necessarily portray a woman like that. I'm sensitive to making people want to look their best. Yeah, whenever we got married, Michael and I got married, we got a caricature done that people could sign the mount of. And whenever the first draft came through to me, of course, Michael looked fantastic. He looked like himself and he just laughed whenever he saw me. <laughs> and he said, you don't look great now, do you? And I'm like, well, it is a caricature. It is a caricature. And you don't want to go back and say to them, well, I did go back and say, could you make me look just a tiny bit better? Just teeny tiny bit better. <laughs> no, I know that because actually my husband did a, he's also a painter and he did a, about a 12-foot portrait of me and my dog. And I must admit, I find that quite hard to look at because I, my expression basically reads, go away. Really? I didn't enjoy the process at all, and it showed on my face. Like, could you just, you know, I won't swear, but could I just back off? <laughs> now, you did have an exhibition recently, was it, in your the village where you live? 
Not that long ago. Um, it's actually probably about 18 months ago I had an exhibition at the Old Coast Guard Hotel of about 10 of the chef paintings. Um, that was a friend of mine who runs the hotel. It was his idea. So that was nice to be able to show the community what I'm up to, because otherwise I do work in isolation. So the paintings have, 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 some of them have been seen. So that was 10 of them then. So, I mean, it's taken you, uh, you know, a lot of time to put... Now, there are 50 in it, so there is obviously a lot to the collection. So how many years have you been doing doing them over? Embarrassingly, about six years. I really thought it was going to take me just sort of two or three. But as I said, it it just spiralled. And I didn't want to leave anyone out. I mean, it was it was very much a case of people saying to me, but this person, and then reeling off their achievements, and me thinking, if I'm going to do this, I can't afford to, to have holes in it. Um, I have to, be, have to be, you know, try and really get a comprehensive collection to represent what I'm trying to record. Because historically thinking, I, um, speaking, I do think there is a gastronomic revolution. I mean, I think what's happened to our country, the entire the United Kingdom in the last really sort of 40 years, but more specifically 15, is is mind-blowing. Um, you can't... People talk about food and have a love of kitchens and restaurants in a way that was, I mean, unimaginable to my parents' generation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, And I mean, I so fell much. in love with it, but the more I started working within it, the more I learned and the more I saw... And the more I realised how it's shaped our culture massively, um, and I wanted to try and get that onto canvases. I have no idea why. I just did. <laughs> Are you a good cook yourself? Do you like to cook? I love to cook, and that I must admit is a big perk because if you get to be with a three Michelin-starred chef, you can just say to them, "Go on, what's the best way to cook pigeons?" <laughs> Fantastic. All that free advice from the from the, the top chefs. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you this evening. You must keep in touch with us and let Thank us you, know Sarah. when you have the 50 finished and um, come on and tell us how it feels to have have reached that milestone. Thank you, Sharon. That's very kind and I've enjoyed talking to you too. In the meantime, the best of luck with it and I'll let you go now and finish moving into your new studio. Lovely. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Henrietta. Thanks for your time. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to Second Helpings of the Best Possible Taste, which features previously aired interviews. I'm Sharon Noonan, and if you're just tuning in, you can catch the show on the podcast, which is on the website SharonNoonan.com, or you can also subscribe to it free of charge on iTunes and download it from there, or you can also use the podcast app. We're at the last interview of the show, and of course it has to be with our trusted wine guru, Ron Forrestal of Forrestal Wine Merchants. When Ron called into the best possible taste studio in September 2016, he had chosen Australian wines to highlight. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Ron, how are you this evening? I'm great, Sharon. How are you? Great. Thanks very much for coming in. I was just thinking before you came in there about in the summer, whenever the sun was shining, those few days that we had, and I couldn't get enough of the Vino Verde, and I have a couple of bottles of it now in the fridge, and I've no interest in it at all, now that the temperature has dropped. Yeah, it, it, that's, Vino Verde falls into the bracket with a couple of other wines that are real summer, fine weather products. 
they just don't seem to fit when, when the weather... Well, I think when the kids go back to school, I think actually that's the time they kind of shut down a bit. Uh, Rosé is the same, has the same problems. We kind of turned to the red wine now, nearly with the fire lit. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. The reds start coming more into... Uh, more popular at this stage. Um, mind you, restaurants... Uh, the We found the white sales in, in restaurants over the summer was phenomenal, in opposed to red. Just like uh, two-thirds probably on most orders that would go out. Yeah. Well, although our summer is over, it's just coming into the summer season in Australia and we're going to talk about Australian wines tonight. Yes. Yeah, I thought it was a, I thought over the next couple of times maybe we could go through a couple of wine producing regions like Australia, Chile, uh, the, the big popular ones, maybe just to give a bit of background on them. Uh, everybody knows products from there. Uh, we're going to talk about a few products that they wouldn't have seen before either that I have here. And um, I just thought it might be interesting to give a bit of information on them. Well, Australian wine, to me now, at college, Australian wines were starting to come in. There was all this chat mm. about New World wines. And yes. to me, Australia would epitomise New World wines. Australia was probably the first country to um, take on Western Europe in a serious way uh, to try and get the wines imported into it. Um, and they did that uh, actually very, very smartly. Uh, they were they used their initiative. They, the Australian government um, subsidised the wines initially to come in, uh, which means they reduced taxes in Australia if you were willing to export to, to Europe because they've seen it as a long-term view. And this now I'm talking about 35, 40 years ago. And people will recognise products like Lindemann's, Wolf Blass, Rosemount, which have been around for a long time. You know, you'd recognise those from wine lists from 20 or 25 years ago even. So the Australian government got involved uh, with Wine Australia, pushed them on. Um, that has changed slightly over the years now. That has been removed, that advent, that, that um, financial advantage they had. So now they're in the same market as everybody else. And uh, Australia was number one in Ireland for, for a number of years. It started beating France about uh, 15 years ago, and France never caught up. Um, but Australia has been taken over by Chile in the last couple of years, mainly because... Chile can produce wine cheaper than Australia can. The issue being that um, the labour labour costs in Chile are just much lower. Um, and Australia, they're pretty high. They're standard industrial wages that they pay people, whereas that's not the case in, in Chile, where they're, they're, and they're, their monthly uh, salaries or wages are much lower than that. But they're very much in line with the economy in, yeah, absolutely. in Chile. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's no issue in Chile with that, just yeah. that they're like the average... Uh, uh, Salary in Chile is much, much lower than here and much lower than it is in Australia. In terms of quality then, are they both on, on an equal footing whenever it comes to quality or would you view Australian wines as being superior in quality? Well, Australia um, are, are in the wine business. They started growing vines in, in 200 years ago in 1820. Vines originally came from South Africa, from Cape Good Hope in South Africa and were planted by, um, by English um, settlers initially. Um, but they they took a while to take. But the the, the advantage Australia has is that uh, Chile has a very similar climate running down the wine making region that has the Andes and has cool air. It makes very similar types of wine. Australia has huge divergence in, in, in wine production areas, which means they can produce a lot of different grape varieties, a lot of different styles of wine. And they can produce, they can they can emanate areas like there is in Bordeaux and Burgundy, which means that, that they can produce wines that can age very very well and I suppose they have that reputation for producing really high end products as well as as their 
ones that you'll see in supermarkets all the time. And I don't think chili has got to that at all. Chili just hasn't left that market. Uh, chili is good for the the house wine, you know, the wine they buy in the supermarket for 9, 10, 11 euros, where people will have bought Australian products at, you know, that have bought Wolf Blast President Selection at 16 or 17 euros a bottle. So I think that's the difference. And then you have products in Australia, benchmark products like uh, from Penfold, you have Grange, you know, very well thought of uh, Case a, a case of Grange will set you back about fifteen or sixteen hundred euros when it's released each year. People keep the year, um, keep the years if they can, um, and they have Cape Mental. You have some really really good products, um, so you have to have very well thought of all over the world. Every part of the country then grows grapes, or are there some regions that are very like it, like the southeastern Australian Sauvignon Blanc is a very popular one. Well, the, 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 all South Australia tends to grow grapes. If you draw a line across, they tend to grow grapes right underneath that, that midsection of Australia. But South Australia wine, that region itself, has all the names that you'd recognise, such as Barossa, um, you know, Clairvary, McLaren Hill, Coonawarra, all those areas that you'd recognise from bottles when you see them. So all the top-end products would come from that area, mainly because it's very luscious, um, has... Uh, mountainous, which means that it has valleys, which means it has uh, where you grow on the side of hills and you get the the, the best possible um, interaction with the weather and the sun and it has really nice weather and really consistent weather when they need it for grape growing. So they don't have the issue that France has where they have a good year, not so good year. They tend to be very stable year on year. Weather tends to be pretty similar. And it's Australia's a great country, you know, it's, a lot of winemakers have gone from France to live in Australia and move to it and they enjoy it. And then they can come back to France for their winemaking because the opposite ends, which means they can have the best of both worlds. So and there's a lot of Irish connections there as well, isn't there? Huge amount, as you'd have seen before with the event that you had. Um, a last, wine goes cheese. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, where they have cheese. huge connections. Um, and yeah, it's, it's uh, I actually have one of them here today, but they, they're products that they've big big companies behind them uh, like if we take Wolf Blast uh, Lindemans uh, Rosemount um, and Penfolds are all owned by the same company mm-hmm. by Southcore which is a massive company um, so they've huge power uh, the products are very good absolutely very good um, uh, you don't see them a lot as house wine in restaurants anymore because they're a bit above that price level probably but they do have some really nice products and I brought a few here today just to, to um, to um, give you a feel for a few okay. different ones. This, now, the grape varieties that you recognize from Australia, are the really big ones are Shiraz is the number one red grape variety. Um, it's, a, you know, it's a very big, heavy drinking red wine, goes with red meat very well, steaks, that kind of thing. But they also grow Pinot Noir, Merlot, Grenache. In the whites, then Chardonnay is their big one. Uh, in the post New Zealand, which Sauvignon Blanc is, is, is number one. Uh, but in Australia, Chardonnay is, is number one by far. Okay. 60% of their white grapes are Chardonnay. They also grow Sauvignon Blanc. They you know, grow some Pinot Gris, which makes Pinot Grigio. Uh, Viognier, which is a grape variety that they, they... It's a really nice white grape variety, but it can be used to blend with red ones as well. So you'd have a lot of, sh- have a Shiraz Viognier here today, which is a red and a white grape blended together. Okay. Well, let's start with the first one. What is it? Yes. Well, I brought two wines from a, a winery in Murray Darling, um, which is in South Australia, and they're called River Retreat. Uh, it has a, there's a very good value, just costing over 10 euros. It has a Cabernet Shiraz in red. Now it has a Merlot, it has a plain Shiraz, 
um, and then the white have a Chardonnay but it also has a Sauvignon Blanc as well so it has a whole range of products but they're really smashing products now the Australian Chardonnay tends to have oak and it's you know that feel that kind of smoky feel that you get off when you drink Chardonnay that's been in an oak barrel and it's because it's of the barrel yeah absolutely um, absolutely actually I'm getting some barrels you believe, tomorrow from Chile they've sent me some barrels from Chile because they're only one use barrels okay right so don't use them for anything after that so are you going to plant them up or what are you going to do with them I haven't quite decided yet um, they're big these things cost about seven or eight hundred dollars really to buy for the companies they're oak they're oak barrels yeah very impressive are there not some companies that buy those then for whiskey once they've been used for wine they might use them for whiskey they tend to use port ones uh, a lot no they 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 do but you can imagine the amount of whiskey producers would need like the pop they would need was 20 or 30 barrels to produce a lot of whiskey whereas wine uh, wineries use hundreds of barrels and there's virtually no use for them again afterwards unless they pare them down completely because the problem is the wine sits in them and the wine then soaks into the oak on the inside so whatever you put into it after that it's going to pick up the previous mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. So that's where the issue is. That yeah. You just don't have the... But it's a, it's amazing. Now, saying that, not every winery is willing to spend that kind of money. They have other methods of getting it to taste with oak that doesn't involve putting into Okay, yeah. But let's not go there. <laughs> so the uh, so I have those two from River Retreat from Murray Downers, which is a winery that we started dealing with a couple of years ago. And we're the only people who have in the country. There's nobody else has it except us. So that's exclusive to yeah, Forest Wine Merchants. It's great. It's a really nice product. I really like that one. Then uh, the next one I have is a is a hundred percent Shiraz. Uh, it's called the Black Shiraz. It's from Burton Vineyards, Barossa Valley, South Australia again. And uh, this is a very really Burton are a reasonably big producer of wine, but they make some amazing products. Now they have a huge amount of products. They produce probably twenty five different wines inside their brand, um, but this is one of their top end better products, costing about fifteen or sixteen euros a bottle. Are they all around that price, 10 to 15 euros? Yes, yeah, yeah. That's You can pay much more, but people, like if you go into a wine list in a restaurant, if you're going to spend 40 euros on a bottle of wine, it's probably not going to be Australian. You'll probably go back to France, or you'll probably go back to maybe Italy or, or Spain. Um, people will spend about, you know, 20 to 30 euros on a bottle of Australian wine, generally. And they're all screwed up, I see. Yeah, they're all, now you get a lot of Australian products that are not the reds, some of the better reds will have cork, but the majority of them will all have screw caps. And they have cork really, it's just an image type thing, Absolutely, isn't it? it's an aging thing more than anything else. It's something that they want to keep for maybe 10, 15 years, and they just don't trust the screw caps. And do you trust the screw caps for that job do, for absolutely. 10, 15 years? Because I know now we've talked about it in detail before, and you feel that that is the way forward. It is. The only thing is that the aging process, like for anything that goes into a, a a bottle that's going to be drank in four or five years the screw cap is perfectly fine but the the advantage cork takes over is after that five years for aging whereas it has an actual impact on the wine that's in there and has a certain amount of breathability in it that ages it better so that's why nobody's willing to put it in but mainly not only they're not willing to put it in they just don't want to risk the product that they have by putting it into a screw cap to test it because it's not worth it and they've had where they've you know bottled 24 bottles and left them in a screw cap and see what happened to them and they just feel that the cork has had a better product, a better result so and there's a whole visual aspect of the cork that you know if you were to spend 100 euros on a bottle of wine you just just cracking open a cork just doesn't, doesn't seem 
Yeah, I saw something there recently. I, I, I don't know, was it a photograph in a magazine or something, but a sommelier had opened a bottle of wine that had a cork and whatever way he'd taken the foil off, it wasn't removed completely off the bottle and there was the hole in it. So he actually, when he took the cork out, Put he it put it into it. It, it yeah. was very cool. It might have been Ashford Castle, actually. Yeah, a picture yeah, yeah. I've seen Castle. it done several times, actually. Dremoland used to do it for years. Yeah, but now there's so I, few corks. I just, just thought spend. it was very classy. It is, yeah, yeah. They, they, they cut a strip off the top of the, the lid. You really need lids. You know, you know the, the heavy, the almost like metal yes. closures, not the um, plastic ones that okay. don't work. Okay. It needs to be all They cut a strip in them all the way around so that they come around and curl around and put the cork in the top. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. It looked good. All right, well, three great wines. If people are looking for them, the website is forestalwines.ie and um, you get, they can order them off you and you'll deliver no problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Great. Well, thanks for coming in to talk to us about the Australian wines. Next month, then, we're going to be looking at... I think we should look at Chile. Chile. Chile is number okay. one in the country. We'll look at Chile so I think wine. that's the... And people would drink a lot of Chilean wine, you know, even if they don't mean to. When they ask for a glass of Sauvignon Blanc in a bar or something, chances are it's, nine times out of ten, that's going to be Chilean. Okay, great. Well, I look forward to that. In the meantime, thanks again for coming no problem. in. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleunter. Sadly, that brings us to the end of Second Helpings of the Best Possible Taste. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Rachel Keeley, Henrietta Graham and Ron Forrestal. And if you want to catch up on other Best Possible Taste programmes, be sure to log on to the podcast on SharonNoonan.com. Thanks so much for your company and until next time, bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!